Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday. <clears throat> so, uh, I'm trying to stick to the schedule. I looked up whose yard site is today. Not a big selection for my purposes, but I saw one that I could concentrate on, and that's the brother-in-law of the Baal Shemta, believe it or not. You're even good for me. Aravim Gershon uh, Kutover from the town of Kutov. I know his name doesn't sound too familiar to many of you, probably, but that's okay. Uh, he, he, this is a very interesting story, to be perfectly honest. Very interesting biography. Not many people know much about him. Years ago, I had a book from Heschel where he did a whole essay on him, but like many of my books, they're borrowed by students and never seen again, I suppose. Uh, so if anybody's out there and they know what it is, give me back my book. But anyway, going by memory, uh, he were done with somebody living in the 18, I'm sorry, in the 1700s. Eh, something like a 1700 to 1760, I believe that's the year, something, something along those lines. And um, we don't know the exact date of the birth, but I'll take that back. It's probably more like 1710, 1712. Not that that matters to you. Anyway, uh, here's somebody born to an elite family. Once upon a time, you had this notion. I spoke about it a couple weeks ago about the Galaxy Honors and all this. Because he's a Galicianer, and he's from Brody. Brody was the city had the largest Jewish community in the old Poland. I've referred several times in these podcasts to the Poland that no longer exists. The Kingdom of Poland, or Lithuanian Polish Commonwealth, that lasted for a couple hundred years, which was gigantic. It included the countries today of Poland, and all of Belarus, and all of Ukraine, and Lithuania and Latvia. That's a big piece of Kharkov. And they had the largest Jewish community in the world, both quantitatively and certainly qualitatively. Biggest uh, learning and intense Judaism, and no question about it. So uh, here he's born into this in the 1700s when the Polish Jewish community was still chugging along. And uh, most of the communities were very small uh, because the land, I told you once, was owned by noblemen, by landowners. They owned whole cities. And uh, therefore, in the old economy, before the Industrial Revolution, towns were small. But the largest Jewish community in whole Poland up to the 1700s was Brody, which is in the eastern part. Now it's in Ukraine. You've probably never even heard of it. And it had 7,000 people. And by the standards of once upon a time, that was big. And Poland certainly had an elite crust among the Jews, the, the Jewish equivalent of the Polish nobility, meaning the Poland had their upper 1% that told the other 99% what to do. And the Jews tried anyway to have the same thing. And those were families that were consisting... Uh, number one, of money, and number two, of learning, if they could combine the two. Torah, Gedul, and Malcolm Echad, as the expression goes. And uh, these are places where, let's face it, in order to be a big time you have to put in a lot of years of learning. How do you make a parnasa? How do you have a, uh, able to put in a lot of time in learning? you got to go out and make a living, don't you? Unless you come from a rich family, and a rich family that can afford to support you in some fashion or another uh, for an extended period of learning, hoping that one day you'll be a big rabbi and bring fame in the family or something along those lines. And uh, therefore, you can uh, afford to put in, uh, you know, serious time in learning. Obviously, the person I'm talking about, that type of person has to be a, a learner. Right? If you don't like it and you just, you know, get money to sit in some basement and, you know, 
while away your time. You're not going to stand for that too long. You'll be bored out of your mind. But if you take to it, that's how a lot of big famous uh, Rabbanim grew up in Poland uh, over the centuries. And if we're talking the 1700s, Brody was a place that had a distinct group of very wealthy Jews uh, from trade, from business. You know what I mean? They knew about import and export. They were hooked up with the noblemen. And uh, it was a very good economy in those years, believe it or not. And the result is that if you wanted to, people wanted to get prestige. This is before modern times, before reform, conservative, secular existed. So if you wanted to get brownie points in the Jewish community, you had to have a reputation of big Talmud Chacham. And in Brody, it all came together, and they founded there what they called the Kloys. Now, Kloys is simply a certain type of kolel. Nowadays, we use the word kolel. Once about a time long ago, they used the word Kloys. And uh, like from the Christian Klaus, a cloister, you know, a church. A Kloys. And what that meant was that um, some rich Jew, very often a woman, by the way, uh, would set aside a sum of money as an endowment. You know, you don't touch the principal. And it was for the pious purpose of supporting so and so many people in full-time learning for a certain period of time. Each Kloys, and they were all over Eastern Europe and Central Europe, each Kloys had its own constitution that was set up according to the will of the donors. And there would be a charter. So just for example, there's a lady, Bluma. So she put up a Kloys because she was rich. She was a good businesswoman. And she's very pious. And she wants to support Talmud Torah. And this is in the old days. And she'll say, I'm putting in so and so much money. It's invested in such and such a situation. Obviously, you want a safe and sound investment as much as possible. Real estate, something like that. And the uh, interest, you know, I mean, the, the dividends, the profits, will go to support, for example, five guys or ten guys or twenty, you know, something like that. Never more than that. In full-time learning for a certain period of time. And uh, there are rules. You know, she wants to get her money's worth. So these guys have to learn 24-7. Or they have to sleep in the basement. I'm serious about this. So they're all married, but they only go home once a week. That sort of thing. And the rest of the time, you're really putting in full-time learning. And uh, out of this system came many great people in the 18th century. I can tell you that right now. And the most famous of all these cloisters was the Cloisters of Brody. It's world famous. Uh, really, it was world famous throughout the Jewish world. And even, even the Poles knew about it. And uh, here you had people that obviously, let's put it this way, in order to get into this kind of place, you have to have family connections, nothing new there. You had to have the right uh, money situation. And you obviously had to have the brains, because why would they want to take money that's not so, you know, it's pretty scarce, and put in for a guy who's going to spend a couple of years and come out as a nothing. They'd rather take a promising young man who looks like he'll be some big Tom Chacham one day and invest in him. So it's just like business model, certain capitalism, you understand? Uh, but capitalism in the context of Talmud Torah. There's a lot more to say about it, but that'll suffice for the moment. And um, the person I'm talking about, Avram Gershon Kutover, his father was already a member of that clase, and so was he. Was here, and and uh, they were, you know, after you graduated, if I can use that term, after you put in your five years, your six years, your ten years, whatever the particular charter or constitution of that institution said, then it was expected you to go out and become a Rav, or maybe a, 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 some kind of a Magachir. Or more often, you'll do the following. You'll go into business, and you'll be a very learned ta- ba- a Balabas. What's wrong with that? A lot of these guys said, who needs Rabbanus? I'll go and be, a, a, hopefully, a successful businessman. Once you became a successful businessman in that world, in this elite, 
then you wanted to be the rabbi of some community, so they would buy the job. You understand? Those guys very rich. They'll go to some small little village. They'll say, elect me as the rabbi. I won't get in your way. You won't get in my way. But I can sign my letterhead, you know, the Av Bezin, the rabbi of this in this town. Who knows how many people are in it? So this kind of prestige business would be there. Let's put it this way. The guy would say like this, I'm now the chief rabbi of Pocomoke on the eastern shore of Maryland. Who cares? You know, but then you call yourself, here's the chief rabbi of such and such a town. So the vanity of vanity is always vanity, as Shlomo Mel said. He had plenty of that running around those days. That's how the system worked. Now, here comes the funny part. The person, our hero today, whose yard site is today or yesterday, whenever, this week, Avram Gershon Kurtover, meaning from the town of Kutov, which is near Brody. So his father came from this kind of background, and therefore he raised his son to be from that kind of background. So you have a guy who's a big learner, and uh, is situated well in that, you know, he's uh, married, and uh, by now he's, uh, you know, a young uh, colo guy, as we call today, with a good future ahead of him. And he was very from, oh my goodness, very from. Now what does from mean in the period I'm talking about, in the old days? It's the old Hasidus, not the new Hasidus. The old Hasidus is the Hasidus of, um, what shall I say, rigor, self-denial, self-flagellation. You hit yourself. Um, it's into the idea, I think I mentioned this earlier podcast, I think I did. It's the idea of teshuva as penance, not only repentance. Penance means you, you inflict uh, you know, pain on your body to make up for all your sins. I, what kind of sins did these people do? In their mind, they had big sins, you know? And so, uh, there's a whole literature that's going back to the Hasidi Ashkenaz, very honorable within the Ashkenazic Jewish tradition. The Hasidi Ashkenaz are a thousand years ago, but you have this whole notion. And wherever you go, you go, Lifni Mishur Sadin, to be machmer and to be uh, machmer in, in doing more mitzvahs than required, and machmer in avoiding a various more than required. As I think I told you once, if you look at the Mishthil Shisharm, you see helpful definitions of these concepts. And by the 18th century, they were talking about, under a variety of influences that'll be too long to go into over here, the Ashkenazic, especially Eastern European notion of Hasidism, had developed along the lines of people who fast a lot. They do a lot of vidois. Uh, they uh, seclude themselves a lot. Uh, you're really tough on yourself. Uh, and the idea of being like this, it's a good thing. You understand? Because don't under estimate the power of sin it leads a very bad uh you know wake and if somebody did something wrong it's not a clinicite not like nowadays where a person said i did the biggest of error but don't worry i'm not gonna do it anymore you know that sort of approach that's the modern approach but in this in the old days if you did something wrong you should fast and fast and you should go without and walk uh, barefoot and all sorts of things like this and this guy loved it <laughs> some people at old school they actually like this sort of thing and it's famous that he was very big much into the self, um, can I use the word self-tortures and things of that nature. And this was once considered a basic part of Judaism. Now, it's not surprising, by the way, that a lot of these people got involved in this, got very depressed. That's using a modern terminology that they would never use in those days. Because this, this uh, beating up on yourself ain't great for the ego, you know. On the other hand, I might be wrong. Somebody can, this is a Musser commentary. Oh, you can have a big ego, because look how from I am, you know. I'm such a sinner. I've been a ganze garnish. You don't have the right to call yourself a garnish, but I've worked on myself, and therefore I know I'm a garnish. You, know, you can get into all kinds of variations of this uh, phenomenon. Now, 
Rabbi Avram Gershon Kutover was a chassid of that type. So here's a person who's in the biggest kolel in the world, the most important kolel. He's well-to-do. His father is a big macher. Uh, he's going to be able to devote, it looks like, the rest of his life to staying in this community, which is a very nice, well-to-do community. And he can sit Yoshev ala Torah And in the cloys of Brody, they were so intense in their learning that a lot of them switched not only for Nigel but also for Nister. It's one of the few places in the Ashkenazic world that had people who seriously studied the Kisvi Arizal and other Kabbalistic uh, texts, which are not meant for the average person. As a matter of fact, the Kloiz of Brody was, was acknowledged by the rest of the Ashkenazic Jews as the right to deviate from communal customs because they're on a high madrega. So they probably doffened uh, somewhat Nusachsfar, and I don't remember exactly all the little uh, uh, changes in the rituals. They dressed with, on white clothes on Shabbos. Uh, but there you say like this, look, the guy's walking the walks, so he can talk the talk. I mean, he is learning 24-7. They know Shah's cold. A person like that can study Zohar. That's how they would talk in those days. You shouldn't study the Zohar. And you definitely have no idea what you're talking about when it comes to Rizal. Because who are you? You're just a yutz. But these guys are serious Tamachacham. It's what you call Mamala Krasa B'Shatsa Poskim. So they learn up a velt. And therefore, it's proper, appropriate for people of that type to indulge or uh, to engage, I should say, in deeper, trying to understand the metaphysical uh, concepts that the Torah speaks about. You know, all that sort of thing, right? Um, you know, what's really happening in Pesach, what really happened in Maimon Harsinai, you know, go beyond the superficial. They can do it. And that's who this person was. Uh, just to give you an idea of the kind of Chabura we're talking about over there, because all the people at that time were famous names. Trouble is, you don't know who famous names were. If I would say them, it wouldn't mean anything to you. But uh, but one person you know, the Nodabi Yehuda, Cheskalando, he came up through this kolil also. And if you're interested, you can see uh, a very dramatic uh, hespit he gets for his wife. I'm talking about the Nodabi Yehuda when she passed away many decades later. Very beautiful uh, speech. I'm planning to do this in Prague when I go there in July with my trip. Uh, where he, I remember he begins by saying, "You have eulogized me, and I will now eulogize my wife," because the speakers must have, you know, talked about the husband more than the wife. And he said. She was willing to be my wife and not see me for six days a week. She knew where Kolo was in those days. That's who she was. So that's a real life of dedication to Torah, and that's not an expression I'm talking about. These guys really took it seriously. Now hold that thought. Hold that thought. Now the scene switches and becomes very dramatic. Because now he's a contemporary of the person you and I know. He's rolled by an Eliezer to Baal Shem Tov. Now the story intersects. While all this is happening in this elite environment, somewhat far away, not around there, but not so far away from Brody, was this young man called the Baal Shantov, who was an orphan. He had no yichas. He came from the wrong background to be a member of the elites in, in Ashkenazic Poland. And the story I'm telling you is in the official biography of the Baal Shantov, the Shifrei Abesht, which you never know if it's 100% accurate because it was published, I believe, 65 years after the Baal Shantov died published by Chabad, so who knows, but historians have been playing around with this, I'm very serious, been playing around with this, how historic it is, how accurate it is, for many years, and it seems to, you know, fairly, seems to be fairly accurate, so anyway, that's the best we'll get, it's very romantic story, so, so in case you don't know it, here it goes, this young man, Baal Shem Tov, is, uh, grows up in special circumstances, like I said, he's an orphan, and uh, he just has tremendous amuna from the time he's very young, 
and you must have like a superior soul. And he adopts the uh, strategy at a young age of a nister, meaning he's Clark Kent in public, a Superman behind the, the scenes. Okay, uh, he encounters a whole long story, but he encounters somebody who teaches him Kabbalah, and then he goes very far in Kabbalah. And I don't know how he learned the other stuff, but let's say he did. And but you don't know it. He's hiding it. You know, so like I say, he's Clark Kent, and therefore he was he he, he had a job as a behelfer, as a uh, nursery school aide, not teacher of the aide. And he's totally fine with that because the person who's really spiritual isn't looking for points, you know, the, looking for a public uh, uh, pr- approval, you know, praise. That's the story. Wait a minute. And then the story goes like this. Once upon a time, the father of our hero, Avram Gershon Kutover, who was a member of the elite and from Brody and was a former closed member himself, and was connected with all the high and mighty, and was a big Talmud and all that. He was a businessman, like I told you. These guys had Torah, Dulmacha, they had business. And his business carried him through the town where the Baal Shanta was living at that time, going around as Clark Kent. And for some reason, the story goes, this guy noticed that Clark Kent doesn't look like Clark Kent. There's something funny about him. He doesn't quite fit the profile of the nursery school aide. There's just something about him. He's dressed that way, and he plays along with the children that way, and he sings the, 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 the songs with the kids that way, but there's something about him, and he gets obsessed over this, and he starts to stalk him. So in other words, the rabbi stalking the Baal Shem Tov, and he eventually catches him in the middle of the night when nobody's looking, learning a Rizal, and knowing what he's talking about, and he basically says, I caught you. I knew you're not what you've seen. And the Bashenta says, why did you stalk me? And I'm trying to hide it, and I don't want to have nothing to do with all this. And uh, the guy said, no, 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 I didn't mean to harm you. The story goes. On the opposite, I'm amazed you're a real thing. Your mom is a Superman. And so, remember, this is Poland in the 1700s. So he says, I want you to marry my daughter, be my son-in-law. And Bashenta says, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. And uh, that's a, this is a breach in class. You understand? The Bashenta done blocked in that class. He's from the lower classes, and here's somebody from the elite is offering this. It's a highly unusual story. And they both agree, and they sign, I remember, they signed the, the, the document, the Shaduchim, whatever, you know, whatever you call in those days. And he said, we'll have the wedding in a month, or I don't know when, you know, something like that. And you'll come to Brody, and we'll get married. Well, the story goes that the rabbi then uh, went on his way and died not long afterwards. So he never got word back to his family. And, you know, he was buried wherever he's buried. And a month later, or two months later, I don't have it in front of me, the Baal Shem Tov goes, this young guy, Yisrael Ben Eliezer, goes to the town of Brody, this very hush of a, you know, yeshivsha type place. And, uh, and, he's, and he's dressed like a poor guy and a, a nursery school aide. He's not dressed in a fancy rabbinical clothes or wealthy clothes. And uh, it's a wonderful story. I remember he goes in to talk to our hero, Avram Gershon Kutover, who's the son of the late father, so he succeeded to his place. And I believe he was giving a, a class, a Gemara or somewhere in town, mm-hmm. and the Baal Shem Tov is standing there, and he gave, he gave him like a nickel or a dime, you know, something like that. He's a, a schnarr, you know. And he says, I don't need the money. He said, that's funny. And he waited until he's finished, and when it's all over, he said, can I talk to you privately? Yes. Who are you? What do you want? He said, I'm here to marry your sister. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> you know, are you delusional? He said, no, I... I did this all with your father before he died. Are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? Are you a liar? Here's the star. He took a look at the star and he like freaked out. This is a real thing. 
and he can't understand it because you just don't do this. And, I mean, uh, just to give you an example of here, you know, Rebel Yosef is not marrying his daughter to a, to, a, to a janitor. You understand? Something like that. It's not happening. <laughs> even, even the janitor is a nice guy. It's not happening. And that's what seemed to be happening over here because they didn't know the Baal Shem Tov Superman. And so the result is that uh, he shows his sister, you knows the intended bride, and the story goes, and she says, I don't get it, but if our father said it, and that's his handwriting, he must know what he's doing. I trust him. You know, this is long ago. And uh, she said, I'm willing to go through with the wedding. And they did get married. Uh, the story is that just before, just before they got married, the Bashanto tells her, I don't want to come in under false pretenses. I look like Clark Kent, but really I'm Superman. I'm not telling anybody, I'm telling you because you're going to be my wife. And we're going to have an unusual life, not the typical life. So if you want to back out, you can back out. That's only fair. And she says, I'm willing to go all the way. And so they got married. But this is Poland yesteryear. And so Avram Groshen Kutubur says, basically, listen, this is bad enough, but don't live in town. I can't have, you know, like I say, the janitor come <laughs> to the show where I daven and just be such a humiliation for the family. It's just too much. So I'll give you money and move out of town and start a business somewhere else. And that's how the Balshantov left Brody and went on his way. Uh, and, and then began his career, slowly but surely, to become the founder of modern Hasidism, you know, the, 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 the big, great Balshantov. Now, uh, what happened to Avon Gershon Kutuber? Well, here the story gets really weird, because he stayed behind, he was a member of this kolel, and everything's going great, but then, not too long afterwards, a certain scandal happened. I can't, in a podcast, I ain't going through all the details of the scandal, but su- suffice it to say that some uh, unusually lurid case of of immorality was discovered with a lady from a very chashava uh, mishpacha in the town of Brody. And uh, it was pretty uh, lurid. And the girls, the lady in question was married to a very rich chashava, big tamachacham, and her father was the number one honcho in Brody. And uh, all the dirty details are in the, are in the Nodi Behuda in Ebenezer 72. Anyway, uh, the, 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 the point of the story is, this is how the tale is told, that this is a big scandal. Her father was a powerful Jew of the old school, meaning he had connections with the Polish lord who owned the town and the whole district, and he used his influence with the Polish lord who had his private army and police force to say that nobody should say a word about my daughter, and if they do, they'll be severely punished. They actually found these uh, a rule to this effect in the Polish archives, believe it or not, Dr. Gelber, who wrote the book on Brody back in the 50s, I think it was. I saw this years ago in my research. Anyway, I wasn't researching that. Don't worry, I was looking at something else. And uh, basically the story goes like this. They put out an order. Anybody who says anything about this woman, uh, this this scandal is now officially buried, which wasn't right, okay? Which was not right. Because if she was really doing this, it has halachic consequences. But anyway, anyone who says anything about my daughter will be severely punished. Either they'll have to pay a fortune and a fine, or uh, they will be beaten up, right? They got Malchus, and this is the old-fashioned Malchus, not 39, you know, 390. And something else bad will happen. I don't remember what. And uh, that shut everybody up. <laughs> if you know what's good for you, just shut up. But this famous story is that there were three guys in the Kolel who couldn't stand the travesty. 
You know, she did a publicly scandalous business and she's getting away with it just because she's rich and powerful and her father's the big boss. So the three guys got together and they said, we're calling a spade a spade. And they went to the basin or the public place in Jewish community and they said like this, I don't care what it is, the truth has to come out. She is no good. She's a zoner or something, you know? Well, and we just want this to be out there in public so people shouldn't, the truth should not be suppressed. The story is... It's mentioned many places. One of them was Rechesco Landau. They know be Well, he's from a rich family. And so they said, basically, you have to pay like 100 bars of gold or something, a lot of money. So he came and he says, I'm calling her what she is. I'm saying it out loud. And here's the money. I'm willing to pay the fine. And that's what happened. Uh, the second one was Mayor Margolis, who later on became a big Talmud of the Baal Shantav and the in Charleston Chubas, I had to use one of myself, not last summer, one of his Chubas. And the third one was Rabbi Gershon Kutubar, who couldn't stand this travesty of justice. And when Ramir Margolis came out, he said, I don't have any money, I don't mind being whipped. The shame Shemayim, and they beat him up. Who knows how many times they whipped him? Yeah, what it is. So think about that. That's, he was willing to do it. And this is a Jew doing it to a Jew, mind you. Uh, the third one was Rabbi Gershon Kutubar who fasted so often, he was schwach. If they start beating him up, he'll die. He was afraid. And so he, he said, I'm calling her, she is what she is, and then he ran away for his life. Well, once you're running away for your life, where do you go? Because the vengeance of the family will be after him. And so, the Nodi Behuda and others, they talked about it, and, and, and they spoke with the Baal Shem Tov about it. And the bottom line is like this, once you have to run away, go to Eretz Yisrael. Now, this is very interesting. There were no Jews in Israel hardly in the 1740s. <laughs> Let me rephrase. There were hardly any Ashkenazic Jews in Israel because of a whole long story. It's too long to go into now, but suffice it to say that in 1700, a whole bunch of Ashkenazic Jews came to Israel. They didn't have any money. They borrowed over their heads. They ended up with a gigantic debt. And then the creditors attacked them, either killed them or persecuted them and destroyed their neighborhoods. It's called the Chorba Synagogue, or Yudah Chassid, that they recently built, rebuilt in Jerusalem. And after that, any Ashkenazi Jew who shows his face in Israel is either going to be hit with the bill, which you can't pay, or the Turks are going to work on you. And for, you know, this is Turkey. First, they kill you. Then they have the trial, and then you're found guilty. So you don't want to deal with that. So, on the other hand, he's a very firm guy. He wants to go to Eretz Yisrael. Now, it so happened at that time, and he did. He traveled from Poland to Constantinople, and then eventually from there to Israel. Very, very unusual. It so happened he came at the right moment. There was a revolution in the affairs of Eretz Yisrael. Uh, I see, I got myself into it over my head. Mm-hmm. This is a very long, it's a very long kind of um, uh, mm-hmm. talk. But suffice it to say that the Jews, the Sephardim in Israel, got into debt over their head. They were highly financially responsible, almost as bad as, as we are in America. Mm-hmm. And the only people that could save mm-hmm. them from a total economic collapse and being beaten up by the Arabs were these rich Jews in Istanbul who set themselves up as a finance control committee and they said, if you put all the money affairs of Eretz Israel totally into our hands, we'll pay the debt, but we're sending the controller in to run the money so there can't be any misuse and bad spending of the money in, in, in the Jewish community in Eretz Israel. It's called the Vada Hapakinim. And they did do it, right? And they did do it. So... Um, the result is 
that, and there's a long story to it, they controlled, no Mishalachim should come in and all the money should go to a central kitty. It's a very interesting story. He happened to come at the right moment. They wanted to encourage the Polish Jews to contribute to this central fund for Eretz Yisrael. And, uh, because Poland had a lot of Jews. And he was a big Talmud Chacham, and some of these guys were big Talmud Chacham also. And so to make a long story short, they facilitated him to move there to Israel, I think in 1747, something like that. And uh, his party from the Baal Shem Tov was a very, uh, uh, what's the right word, um, emotional. Because you see, the story is that although he originally started out as somebody who told the Baal Shem Tov, you got to leave town, and it's a disgrace that my sister's marrying you, but as is always the case in the Shifre Yabesht, eventually he becomes convinced of the Baal Shem Tov's greatness and converts to be one of his followers. And so, after a while, they got along great, and Rav Avon Gershon Kutzer, who was a Chassid A, switches mm-hmm. to be a Chassid B, known as a modern Chassidim, one of the very early uh, Chassidim of the Baal Shem Tov. And what's really interesting from the historian's point of view is that we have letters between the two of them uh, in the late 1740s, uh, because one's living in Poland and one's now moving to Israel. First he moved to Hebron, and then he moved to Yerushalayim, uh, Rabam Gershkotver, and then he ended up, in, I believe, in Hebron again. And some of the famous letters of the Baal Shem Tov, the most famous one, where he says, I talked to the Mashiach, and he says, when is the Mashiach coming? And the, ba- and the Mashiach told the Baal Shem Tov in this dream that they're going to come when everybody converts to Hasidism and does your way. That's actually a letter that Baal Shem Tov wrote to um, Gershkotver when he was in Eretz Yisrael. And he said, I remember one of these letters said something like this. I'm dictating this letter. The Baal Shem Tov says, and I have to stop because I'm crying thinking about you. I miss you so much. I'm, I'm overcome with tears. You know, so I have to stop this dictation. And I'll tell you something really cool. The Baal Shem Tov writes to him and he says, I guess, I wish you were here because you were a good influence on my teenage son. <laughs> I can't live with him. This is often the case with fathers. You can live with somebody else. But the own kids, it, it doesn't work so well. And you were the uncle. You got along with him great. And so... Um, w- w- basically, he says like this, you know, maybe you want to come back and reestablish relations with my son. It was, uh, things were going good in terms of learning a Yiddishkeit, which is just funny, funny to hear. I will uh, say one or two more remarks. Am Gershon Kutzer wrote some famous letters uh, from Hebron to uh, the Baal Shem Tov and maybe to one or two other people. And uh, he has an exchange of corresponds with the note of Yehuda in regard to the outcome of this scandal. It's a long, long story, so I can't do it in the context of this podcast. That'd be a lecture by itself. Very, very interesting. It's in Ebenezer, in the, in the uh, note of Yehuda, Ebenezer 73, 4 and 5, something like that, in the in mid-70s. 72 is the long one, and then 73, 4 and 5 are the back and forth with the um, Gushen Kutavar. And uh, it's a lot of uh, halachic politics, shall we say, very interesting lumdus in many levels, but it's not for this podcast. And the thing is like this, but I'm the only Ashkenazi here in Hebron. I'm one of the only Ashkenazis here in, in Israel. It's hard for me to get along this friend, and we just come from a different background. I like them. They're nice people. They treat me like gold, he says. They give me all the COVID, but they don't speak Yiddish. I don't speak Ladino. They're used to doing things this way. I can't see it that way. And it was really a problem. He said, I'm so lonely. I sit here in the base medish by myself. They treat me like gold. Whatever I want, they give me if I ask for anything. But I have nobody to talk to because we're just so different. Um, and it's a very human kind of letter. Very human kind of letter. And therefore, I miss you terribly. And he was actually thinking of moving back to, to, to Poland. He never did, but he was thinking about it. 
And I remember when his wife died, they, they said, why don't you marry this farty lady over here? And he said, I just can't do it. They're great women. They, you know, they're, 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 I have no titles on them. They're wonderful human beings. But our Judaism is so different than their Judaism. This is the 1700s. I just can't bridge that gap. I really want somebody like myself. So we have Oy Chavrusa Omi Susa. Wow, it's already late, and I've spoken a lot. So i just give you a flavor a little bit. Maybe in some future occasion I'll talk about the rest of it. But here's a person uh, who was uh, truly spiritual, I'll say that, moved to Israel for tru- truly spiritual reasons, although he was always afraid of the, of the other family's uh, vengeance. And uh, basically he's the first important Ashkenazi Jew to move there in the modern period. The Jewish community of Israel, the Ashkenazi Jewish community of Israel, kind of really starts with the Aliyah, Ram Gershon Kutavar, this person whose yard site was yesterday, I think, uh, in the mid-1740s. And uh, after him came a slow trickle, and later on in the 1700s, more people started to move in. And that really became the foundation of what we call the Yeshuv HaYashan, uh, the, the pre-modern state of Israel uh, Jewish community. Boy, it's late, so I'll, uh, I'll end it with that. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.